Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, please do have your Bibles out. Um, keep a finger in, in uh, Luke chapter 5, as that's where we are today. Um, but also, maybe if you've got a bookmark in your Bible, just slot that in Daniel. We're going to be in there too. But uh, yeah, so we're carrying on through Luke. Uh, it's this theme of seeing Jesus, particularly in the early chapters of Luke, um, kind of seeing Jesus for who he is, despite the fact he comes in a very humble form. This is uh, you know, God's son, God himself in human form that we are coming to see. So um, this week we are in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. So uh, let's read God's word together. It says this. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all when they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So there's a couple of firsts in that uh, passage. There's also a couple of um, things that we've already seen. We've already seen Jesus going around healing people. Um, We've already seen Jesus' compassion for the crowd uh, and, and meeting their needs. So in that sense, this passage isn't necessarily unique. But there are some firsts which we'll explore. This is the first time that we are introduced to this group called the Pharisees. It's also the first time that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which if you've read the gospel, uh, any of the gospels before, you'll find is his most, um, his favorite name for himself. And so there is some significant things in this passage that I'd like to unpack together but first, let's just let's, um, see some of the things that are introduced, see some of the context. The first thing that Luke tells us is that Jesus is starting to make some waves. It says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. If you're a Pharisee in Jerusalem, you don't have a lot of reason to leave Jerusalem. Why would you want to leave God's holy city? The fact that there is someone saying things so much so that you think, oh, maybe I should get there, is, is evidence that these people are hearing about Jesus, and now Jesus is starting to send waves through um, Israel. 
Now, we'll come a bit later to who the Pharisees are and why they might want to go and see who this Jesus is. But that's important. Jesus is starting to um, be known across the land. And they're probably coming down to hear, is he on our side? They're coming to inspect him. They're coming to look at what he does and see if they can have him on their team or not. But what we then see is that there is a, a man who is paralyzed, another sick person brought to Jesus. And his friends, not being able to get through the crowd, come and deliver him through the roof. Now, you may know, you may not know, in um, certainly first century Israel, roofs were flat. And so they wouldn't have to be, uh, people used to entertain on the roof. So it's not like they had to get a ladder and climb their way up and avoid all the anti-climb paint. Uh, instead, that there would just be a stairway up and they would break through the flat roof and lower their friend down. But there's something significant that happens at that point. Because the focus here for them bringing them in is not Jesus saying, you've done a good job, or thank, thank you for another sick person to heal. Jesus praises them for their faith. Now, I think this is quite a challenging passage then for us, because as people, as humans, I think we have had many ways, thought of many ways that must be necessary for us to come before God, for us to come before Jesus. I mean, how often do you hear people say, maybe you yourself have said, I'll come to Jesus when my life is in order. I'm such a mess at the moment, but when things are looking better, when I've got to this point, then I can come before him. I've, I've heard people say, I don't think Jesus would be interested in me. I do this, this, and this. There are so many theories on how we get to God. Many religions would say that it's about doing good works, getting your account, uh, enough uh, debit on your account to come before him, to be a good person. But the Bible's answer to that question of how can we come before God is so simple, so simple that we often miss it, so simple that we think it's so simple that it can't be true. And the answer is through faith. We come to Jesus because we have faith that only he can do what we need. Jesus so readily accepts this man into his care because he has come with nothing of his own. And in fact, Jesus praises this faith. And so we should really pay attention to what kind of faith this is, because surely we, for those of us who are Christians, want to have the kind of faith that Jesus praises. So, what do we see? We see that faith is the despairing of your own ability, a complete dependence on God. I cannot do this. He can. It's not merely saying, let's try this. His friends weren't saying, let's try to Jesus. We've heard that he can heal. We've heard that he can do good things, so let's try it. Now, faith is this is our only hope. We must get there. They didn't see the crowd and go, okay, not today. Faith is seeing the crowd and saying, no, this is not going to stop us. We must go on the roof and break it if we need to. We need to get to Jesus. Faith is despairing of our ability and complete dependence on God. But the other thing we see is that faith is neither all head or all heart. We, we quite like to think about 
uh, faith maybe sometimes is a jump, a leap of faith into the abyss, and then you just hope that you'll be caught as you jump. Or sometimes we think of faith as just accumulating enough knowledge about God. We say, yeah, I have faith in God. I believe that he's a trinity and that he's omnipotent. Or da, 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 da. What we see here is that faith is neither all head nor all heart. Faith is not simple fact. To say, if I put this tea bag in this boiling water, I'll get tea. That's not faith. But then merely to say, I have a feeling that if I close my eyes, everything will be okay. Neither is that faith. Faith is the heart's response to what the head knows to be true in action. Faith is informed by fact. His friends are saying, we know this man can heal. We know this man has the answers that we're looking for. But then the heart urging, and so we must get to him. It's not either or. The head informs the heart. Faith is the grabbing onto Jesus because you know that he is the only solution to any and all problems that may be had. And so the question for all of us is, what kind of faith do you come to Jesus with? Is it informed by who he is? Is it a faith that says he is the solution? Do you grab hold of him? Do you climb the stairs and break the roof if necessary? That's the kind of faith that Jesus praises. If we know he is the solution, we will stop at nothing to get to him. Do we sit and wait for him to wow us like the Pharisees? Do we say, I'll, I'll believe in Jesus if he does this? Or Lord, I'm struggling, help me to believe by doing this for me. Are we sitting and inspecting him? Are we in the crowd, happy to hear what he has to say and, and you know, blocking the way because we're enjoying it? Or are we pressing into him by whatever means? That is true faith in Christ. If you know in your head who Christ truly is, then the heart will be saying, I will stop at nothing to get to him. That's the, the first kind of element we see in this story is the kind of faith that Jesus praises, the kind of faith that Jesus looks for, one who looks for him and knows him to be the solution and a sweet solution that he is. Jesus is the all good. When you come to him, there is no such thing as disappointment. But if you think you're coming to him for, he will do over and abundantly more. The second thing that we see in this story is the healing that takes place. We've seen the faith that his friends have. That's a very significant part. But then that, that faith that they have is there because they're coming to have their friend healed. And he is healed. At the end of the story is he walks away. But there's many more things on the path to get there. Because what happens is Jesus doesn't look at him and he says, I've seen your friend's faith, you're healed. Jesus says, I see your friend's faith, and so your sins are forgiven. Now, as we, as we saw in the passage, this causes a conflict with those who are watching. Because Jesus has two miracles that he could do. One choice is to simply heal this man. The other is to forgive his sins. Which is the greater miracle? That's a, that's a question for us to ponder. Which is the greater miracle? If we were there watching Jesus act and a paralyzed man comes before him, 
which one would be better for him to do? See, I think, and you may disagree with me, but I think generally we'd say we'd rather see him healed. That would be more amazing. That would testify to who Jesus is a bit more. If a man who couldn't walk, walks. The Pharisees would be happy if he'd just healed him. The Pharisees probably wouldn't have had the conflict if he'd just healed him. Jesus says the greater thing, the problem for them, is not that he simply healed him, but that he forgave him his sins. Now, if we say that the healing is the greater miracle, then we don't understand our greatest need. When you have something that is rotting and a stench starts to emerge from it, you can spray Febreze on it and it will remove the smell for a moment, but the rot is still there. It's still active. The smell will just come back. If you pluck a weed without taking the root out, the weed will grow back. If Jesus were to simply spend all his ministry going around healing people, if Jesus came to be a healer, he would be going around spraying Febreze. He would be going around pulling the heads off weeds. Jesus didn't merely come to heal. Jesus came to restore his creation. Sin has so affected the creation that as we spoke about on Easter, death has set in. Corruption, rot has set in. And Jesus has come to remove the underlying cause of that. Jesus has come to give life. And so the miracle that he gives to this man of forgiving his sins, of taking away that, the enmity that he shares with God, this is giving him life. This is bringing him back into communion with God, the source of all life. And so what this means is, if Jesus weren't to even heal him, if Jesus were to just forgive his sins, he is still guaranteed his healing. What do I mean by that? On the day of judgment, when God judges all creation, those who are found in him will be resurrected to life, to new, glorified, restored bodies. Forgiving this man's sin is the guarantee that he will partake in that resurrection is a guarantee that his whole body will be restored. If Jesus were to just forgive his sins, he still guaranteed his whole healing. He has guaranteed his part in new life. And so Jesus brings the source of all true healing. But obviously this is an, uh, an offense to the Pharisees. How dare he forgive sins? No one can do that but God alone. And obviously, well, that's not a problem because Jesus is God. But the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is if we read this story, if, if we think that forgiveness of sins, well, that's just basic, but healing, that's what we'd really like to see. We've kind of missed the point of what the Bible's trying to teach us. We may say, why doesn't God heal very often today? Well, all of these kind of questions miss that the main problem that affects us isn't necessarily the problems that we have in our body, but the sin that causes them. Sin is the root of all um, corruption in creation. And Jesus has come to restore, not to spray Febreze. Jesus then goes the extra mile and brings some of that future hope into the present by then restoring his body. But even if he weren't to do that, as I say, that, that restoration is already guaranteed. 
guaranteed. And so that a miracle isn't simply when this man stands up. It's when he can say, I am right with God, when he can go home glorifying God. What does that mean? It means every single person sat here who knows Jesus as their Lord, you are a testimony to the fact that God still does miracles today. In in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the God who said, let there be light, has shone the light of Christ in our hearts. In other words, the, the image is, just as we look at the story of Genesis and say, that's amazing that God speaks and light happens, in the same way God has spoken and light has happened in your heart, that is an equal miracle. Creation coming to be and you coming to know God, that is a miracle. Yeah, we can look to healing, we can be excited for healing, but let's not miss the main miracle that Jesus has done in his ministry. He goes around restoring communion with God, restoring us to God. If you're not a Christian, you are invited to come to Jesus and also have that miracle done for you, to have your sins forgiven. It's a wonderful reality that we can talk about that. Healing is of value. Let's not miss that. Healing is of value. Let's not say, well, Jesus did one good miracle and one that was pointless. No, it has value, but it has value because it's a preview of what will happen at the end. Jesus forgives his sins, the true healing, the guarantee of ultimate restoration. And then we see that the Pharisees, as I say, are incensed because he didn't just heal. He did far more. And so the the third part that we see in this passage is the conflict. We've seen the faith, we've seen the healing, and now let's see the conflict that emerges. Now, I'd just like to take a minute to kind of put this in context and, and kind of explain the Pharisees a little bit, because often the Pharisees are kind of seen like the pantomime villains of the Bible. You know, you have Jesus, the good guy, and then there's the Pharisees, and we're saying, boo, naughty Pharisees, whatever. It's even become a bit of a, um, a derogatory term. To, to call someone a Pharisee just kind of means that they're self-righteous and, and you know, a bit up themselves. But it's not entirely true, and it's not particularly helpful for us who want to take the Bible seriously. We have to go back a little bit in, in history. Uh, Israel, by this point in the first century, had returned from exile a few hundred years before. Now, when they were in exile in Babylon, they had this despair. I thought we were God's people, and yet we've been kicked out of the land, and we can't be in the temple. And then when they come back into the land, that feeling is still there. Even though we're back in the land, we're still exiled. Things aren't right still. It hasn't been restored. And so that the hope grew, God is going to act again. Now, different factions then started to emerge of what does that look like? One of those factions which had the the most social power, they held the government, if you like, called the Sadducees, which we also read about in the Gospels. Now, the Sadducees' view was, we're in power now, this is great, God doesn't need to do anything else. And so their theology started to reflect that. They started saying, that God doesn't listen to our prayers, God isn't active, there is no such thing as angels or demons, there is no such thing as a, as a soul, there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection, what we have now is all there is. And so the, the Sadducees were saying that really because it grew out of their identity as what we have now is great as long as we're in power. Now another group that emerged was the Pharisees. 
Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed God is active. God is going to act. He's going to bring his kingdom on earth. He's going to uh, destroy his foes and vindicate his people, those who have remained faithful. They believed that there was angels and demons, that prayer was important, that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. They believed in the afterlife, that if you die whilst being righteous, you will go to heaven. Now, the reason I say it's not very helpful for us to think of them as simply the pantomime villains is, who does that sound a lot like? Us. Christians really have inherited the the, the Pharisees' form of Judaism. We are the expansion of it. The problem isn't necessarily the Pharisees. The problem is how the Pharisees have developed at this point. Their premise is, when God acts, we want to be found in in the right, in his sight. We want to be just in his sight. But that had grown to an obsession, which meant putting commands where God hasn't commanded something. Let's say, for instance, that somewhere God had given a command that you can only eat 100 slices of bread in a week. The Pharisees would be saying, well, in that case, we'll only eat 50. They were putting barriers to make sure that we were all well in the bounds of what God had commanded. That's really the problem. And so when they come to hear Jesus, they're coming to hear this person who is announcing the kingdom is coming. They're thinking, it sounds like he's on our side. Sounds like he's saying the right things. The kingdom is coming. And we want to be found in the right. But then, what does this person do? He lets the side down. Because not only is he doing what only God can do. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? But the other question for us is, where does God forgive sins? The Pharisees know he only forgives sins at the temple with a sacrifice. Come into the temple with your sacrifice and God will forgive you there. Jesus is here claiming not just to be God, but to be the true temple. And the sacrifice that's brought before him isn't an animal, but faith. And so conflict arises. This guy is definitely not on our side because when God comes, he's going to call this guy a blasphemer. The irony is they are missing their hope that God has come. Jesus is calling the temple obsolete because he is the temple. He's saying that sacrifices look forward to trust in him. But then Jesus does something very interesting. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In verse 24. Why does Jesus call himself the son of man? What does the relevance of this have to this conflict with the Pharisees? Why does he use it from now on throughout the gospel to describe himself? Well, if you have your Bibles with you, let's open up Daniel 7. Now, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, then you'll know it's uh, not exactly the most straightforward book. Daniel, if someone asks you, what kind of book is it? Is it history or prophecy or poetry? You kind of go, uh, uh, yes. It's, it just changes constantly between them. And so it can be quite confusing. Many of us will know the story of, for instance, um, Daniel's friends being put into the furnace. That's clearly history. But then you move on in the next chapter to Daniel's uh, dreaming about kingdoms rising and falling. And by the end of it, you're reading about angels who are fighting for nations and 
it's it can be very confusing but i just want to look at daniel chapter 7 we're not going to read all the way through it but i just want to focus on some things so in the first verses of daniel 7 daniel sees a vision he says i saw a dream and he said i saw a beast arise four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and then in, in verse 5 he said this, he saw a second one like a bear and then verse 6, he saw another like a leopard. And then in verse 7, he saw a, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. So there's this image of these four great beasts which are there to devour, to scare. But then in verse 9, verse 9 and 10 say this, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Here these great beasts have arisen to devour, but God has sat on his throne to judge. And then we see in verse 11, and I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The beasts have been vanquished. And then verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions and behold, in the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See the image there? There are these beasts, these devouring beasts that have come to devour. But God's judgment is that their dominion should be taken away, and instead one like a son of man, which is a Hebrew expression just for a person, a person who doesn't seem to have any power compared to these great beasts, yet this one person is called up into God's presence and are publicly vindicated, are given authority and power over these beasts. Now again, you might say, well, that's still quite confusing. And so we'll go back one more chapter because Daniel often ex explains and then explains. So in Daniel 6, what's the story? Naomi read it for us. There's Daniel, a righteous man one who is doing what God has commanded, and then the powers of darkness, these in the government who are trying to get rid of him, condemn him unjustly. And he's thrown down among the beasts, among the lions who are waiting to kill him. But then he is, his righteousness is vindicated. And the next day the king comes and stands at the, at the um, door of the den and he calls down to him, Daniel, are you there? And he says, yes. God didn't let the lions hurt me, for, for I was righteous in his sight. And so he calls him up into his presence, and he vindicates him publicly, and the beasts are vanquished. And obviously the story gets a bit different there because his enemies then thrown in. But the picture there is that there is one who is cast down among the beasts with the power to destroy. If you were kind of guess who would win that fight, you wouldn't say the person but they're called out, they're shown to be in the right, and God vindicates them. 
The same thing happens in Daniel 7. These beasts are overthrown. This is a prophecy of Jesus. He's sent down into the world in the conflict there. All these foreign powers and oppressive regimes and people who are uh, against him. The Pharisees in this story that we've been looking at represent the beasts here. They are uh, enthroned, judging him, looking in on him. But Jesus is saying, I too will, will be that son of man. This story is about me. I am that son of man. Notice in Daniel, it says a son of man. Jesus says the son of man. Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. This is kind of a preview to the rest of the story for us. Jesus will be in conflict, but he will be vindicated. Jesus will have those around him judging him, but God will call him up. God will give him authority, a kingdom that all nations, languages, and people will serve him. So the question for us is when we read this story, are we reading about some bloke? Daniel just saw a son of man. He didn't look particularly impressive compared to those beasts. Jesus doesn't look particularly impressive to these Pharisees. He's just a guy. But to him, God has given a kingdom, authority, and power to forgive sins, to restore lives. Now, we live 2,000 years after the Gospels are written, so we know that Jesus has been publicly vindicated through his resurrection of the dead, through the destruction of Jerusalem's temple, and through his ascent into heaven. Jesus was speaking the truth all along. Just as Daniel could say to the king, the lions did me no harm because I was in the right, so too Jesus can say that. History tells us that he's been vindicated, that he has been given a kingdom, that all nations, peoples, and languages should serve him. So how do you stand before him? If you are a Christian, then the beauty is you are one of those peoples that have been given to him, that you stand in that kingdom, that you share in his vindication, in his victory over the beasts, over the powers of darkness. If you're not a Christian, then the invitation is to do what the paralyzed man's friends do and press in on him to come to the Son of Man, the one who has been vindicated, the one that has been shown to be in the right, and put your faith in him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that though you were in the lion's den, that though you were surrounded by enemies on every side, nonetheless, the Lord called you up to his presence and vindicated you, Lord, and gave you your kingdom, which we now live in. Lord, we pray by your spirit, give us that same faith that the paralyzed man's friends had, Lord, that we would press into you knowing that you are the only solution. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of forgiveness of sins, that through forgiving us our transgressions, you guarantee our whole restoration. You guarantee our, our place in the resurrection. Lord, help us to enjoy your commands, we pray. Help us to uh, in delight in righteousness, to not be like the Pharisees who make your law a burden, but Lord, Lord to, to see your victory. 
And Lord, we thank you that just as you vindicated Jesus, so do so too will you vindicate all those who trust in him. So make that our hope, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.